Episode 14 of the Bowery Boys. Look, it's Peter Stuyvesant. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. We just wanted to thank you all very much. We've been getting a lot of emails and and good wishes and suggestions and all sorts of stuff. And some interesting reviews, too, on iTunes. Thanks for the reviews. Yeah, we want to thank you so much. And as as a matter of fact, next week we're going to read a few of what we've been getting and uh, just share those opinions with all of you. Can't wait. I'll be here. (laughs) You will? Oh, excellent. And we should also remind you to tune into the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Greg updates the website every day with very interesting bits of New York trivia, stories in the news. Um, Just uh, anything that sort of catches our fancy, what we think might interest you as a New York history geek. And we are all proud New York City history Uh, geeks. Oh, of course. And to illustrate that, today we bring you episode 14 on Peter Stuyvesant. What could possibly be more geeky than a podcast about Peter Stuyvesant? Well, the reason we're bringing him up is because uh, he is a New Yorker that I think that you should know about. If you checked out our podcast in the third episode. We talked about Alexander Hamilton. So this is our second New York personality that we're doing. Right. And Peter Stuyvesant actually predates Alex by, what, about 100 years or so? Or a little bit more, yes. He's somebody we all need to know. And he's actually still hanging around today, isn't he? He's the king of the East Village. Find out where he's hanging out in the East Village after this. Wow, that was some dramatic music, and it really sets the tone for New Amsterdam yes. uh, in the early parts of the 17th century. Actually, the story of Peter Stuyvesant starts in the 1640s, so maybe, yes. Greg, you could take us back to the world in 1640. Well, in 1640, in the 1640s, Hamlet, Don Quixote, the King James Bible, they're all 40 years old. We're in the middle of the English Civil War. In the mm. Netherlands, Rembrandt's in the middle of his career. In the American, North American, the Jamestown colony has been in existence for over 40 years. A great Puritan migration has actually occurred by now. And so most of the significant colonies of New England have actually already been formed. So there's a lot going on. And of course, New Amsterdam has been going on for quite a little while here, too. Though not that long. I mean, it was, I take it that's my cue to kick in yeah. with the, the story of New Amsterdam. Basically, to pull back, Henry Hudson coming over for the Dutch in 1609, quote-unquote, discovering Manhattan, reporting back to his bosses uh, out of Holland that there's some great trading to be done with the Indians, lots of fur pelts. And so settlers moved over. And so the company, which really was in control of all of the Dutch trade Mm -hmm. at that time, sent over the first group of settlers in May of 1623. 110 people came over and they lived in this this general area. What they called New Netherlands. All their colonies, basically up and down from Connecticut all the way down to New Jersey and all around and all the little islands in between. And so they called this New Netherlands. And it's just important to know at a macro level that <laughs> that New Amsterdam and New, New Netherlands were a company town yes. in, in company settlement. 
These people were working for the Dutch company. They were here to basically trade with the Indians, get the pelts, and send them back home. Although they weren't all Dutch. It was actually a, a huge mixture of races and ethnicities that actually came to New Amsterdam. So it was a little bit different than a lot of other colonies up and down the eastern seaboard. Right. These people were not, for the most part, you know, in search of religious freedom. They were in search of jobs. Those people like the Walloons uh, were <laughs> the actually... The Walloons? The Walloons, right? Belgian-born uh, French Huguenots. Okay. Now, the first leader of this group was one Captain May. He didn't last very long. But in 1626, Peter Minuit came over. He named the Lower Territory New Amsterdam and actually did the famous deal with the Indians. Shortly after, we had mm-hmm. other leaders. Van Twiller was the leader in 1633. He wasn't liked. He was called a child of the devil uh, by the pastor. <laughs> he was pretty harsh. Well, these people were coming over and they were leading the settlement for the company. They were, they were like bosses. And meanwhile, at this point, New Amsterdam has sort of become a, a den of kind of drunks and thieves. And, you right. Know, it From was... the very beginning, there were so many <laughs> saloons. The leader was always complaining about the drunkenness in the streets. New York's always been about drinking, I guess, even back then, even before it was New York. And it's always been about making money, really. So in 1638, Kieft came over. He was called William the Testy for his mm-hmm. nasty temper. And he really inherited a mess. And he set to reform, but to the but he made it Worse. Right. He, <laughs> he was not liked at all. No, and he actually got into big troubles with the Indians. Well, the, Ke- the Kieft War, correct, in 1643, against the advisement of his actual council of people, he ordered some attacks on two Indian villages, one in Pavona, which is actually in modern-day Jersey City, and one on Corlers Hook, which is actually in the Lower East Side, and it's a place you can still visit, and slaughtered these Indians, and some of them even sought help from, from them, and he turned them away, right? Right, but a thousand Algonquins had actually sought shelter in New Amsterdam, and Keith, he actually sl- sent his men to slaughter 40 of them. It started this massive, bloody, and it, unnecessary... It went on for two years. War, just, right. Killed lots of settlers, lots of Indians, a huge cost of life. Right, and a cost to the settlement. Virtually every part of the settlement was affected by this uh, burned lands, destroyed farms, the whole thing. It was a disaster. So naturally, it should come as no surprise that colonists decide that they don't want him in power anymore. No. And they report back to the state general back home in the Netherlands. And it, it is at this point that Peter Stuyvesant comes into the story. Just to give you a little background, Peter was, uh, he was born in 1612 in an area of the Netherlands called Friesland. He's actually, he's referred to himself as Petrus, which was the Latinized version of Peter. He was, a, he was a minister's son, but d- didn't pursue that. He went to college for philosophy, but got kicked out of college for supposedly sleeping with his landlord's daughter. That'll get you kicked out? Yeah, he was a, <laughs> he was a little bit of a spitfire. He, uh, you know, he, he ended up entering uh, the Dutch naval and trading world in, Bra- in Brazil and then Curaçao. Ended up becoming the commander of the Caribbean military and political operations down there. At this point, Dutch was becoming a big naval power and a big trading power. Spain was actually weakening and Spain actually had control of many of those islands, but they went to, to overtake them. It was during one of these attacks on an island of St. Martin's that Peter lost his leg. By? A cannonball shell, a mortar shell. And he was, uh, you know, he lost his leg. He was, you know, sent back to the Netherlands, uh, you know, to heal. And he was fitted with a peg leg. This did not stop him. This was in uh, 1644. This did not stop him. He got married while he was there. Right. And he healed and recovered. And then he went back to the Dutch West Indies company and said, I want to go back to work. He went back to the company at the same time that the Dutch West Indy Company got the complaint about Kieft. So 
all of a sudden here's this strong military capable. commander, capable leader at their doorstep. So they're like, we're going to send you to our wild and ungainly new Amsterdam. So sure enough, Peter makes his entrance, so to speak, along the shores in 1647. Huge, dr- dramatic entrance. All the powder in the town was consumed in salutes, as they say. All the guns went off. Mm. Adrian Vanderdonk, which we'll talk about a little bit later, described him as being peacock-like with great state and pomposity. And immediately he got up on shore and just took charge of things. His leadership style was imperious. Right. I mean, the first thing he said during his inauguration was, I shall govern you as father his children for the advantage of the chartered West India Company and these burghers and this land. The burgers being the people. So not... people are like second place in that. Uh, right. So, a little, uh... so, so this really illustrates, I mean, his priorities. This man was arriving to take control of the company and to really bring stability. In the Caribbean, he was used to sort of martial law, kind of dictatorships. No, military. And, you know... Well, his name literally means to stir up sand. I love this little <laughs> detail I found. Yeah, Stoyven means to stir up and sand to sand. I mean, this man came and he kicked the sand. What an advantageous name. Yeah, I sure mean. <laughs> beats fall with a thud. <laughs> but he, um, he immediately appointed a five-man council, but this was more just an act. It was just a show. I mean, this man was the leader. Oh, really quickly, he took up home in Fort Amsterdam, right. which today, in the same space, is the Alexander Hamilton Custom House, where the Smithsonian American Museum of the American Indian is at right now. You can, it's the exact same spot, so you can kind of... Different building. Visual. Different building, but same spot. Yes. And he also immediately took up some choice land up in what is now the East Village and built himself a nice country escape, which I love. Yes. That you oh, could yeah. escape <laughs> up to the East Village. And along the Bowery, yes. Right, along the Bowery, he built his farm. So as far as his style goes as a leader, I mean, he was a strong leader. He was the judge. He came down hard, and he took it upon himself to restore order on this rather chaotic settlement. So kind of like a, like a Bloomberg with a bit of Giuliani in him, kind Just of. Just mixed in, <laughs> like a Bloomberg-Giuliani smoothie. He was high-handed, and he bemoaned the drunkenness and the disorder of the colony. So he put in place some reforms. Yeah, so what are the, some of the things that he did? It's like he's like an impressive list. Yeah, so in 1648, one year after he got there, he built the first pier on the East mm. River. In 52, the first Latin school, the first speeding laws. The next mm. year, the first prison built. The city tavern became City Hall, which I love. <laughs> that's, if that's not symbolism, I don't know what is. <laughs> then a night watch was created. The first poorhouse was established. Two years later, the first lottery was held. A year later, the city survey was held, and they mm-hmm. found that there were 120 houses at this time mm-hmm. in New Amsterdam, and 1,000 inhabitants were inside the city. Um, it's like one street block now. Pretty much, or <laughs> even less. Yeah, and the next year, the first hospital was erected, and the next year, the first post office was opened. So basically, he just took the town and just shook it out like a rug, basically. He made it work. I mean, this city needed somebody to come and make it work. So you would imagine then that he was beloved, right? No. <laughs> I mean, they must have loved a lot, of, a lot of these improvements, but they just did not like his leadership style. They thought it very despotic. You know, he had a council of advisors, but he rarely took their advice. Right, they were kind of for show. And he really infringed on a lot of his rights. And at this point, I want to bring in someone that I just mentioned earlier named Adrian Vanderdonk. If you read the book The Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto, which some of this information comes from, 
one of his sort of thesis in the book is that is that Adrian Vanderdonk is sort of an unsung early American patriot. Adrian Vanderdonk was the lawyer of New Amsterdam. He basically was the only person who was versed in Dutch law. Mm. He was in New Amsterdam and sort of had to play both sides of the fence. He was sort of the right-hand man of Stuyvesant, but at the same time, you know, he was doing contracts and court cases for the, the normal people, realizing and understanding that they they weren't being properly represented in government and that they didn't have essential rights mm. that a colonist should have at that particular time. So it was actually at the behest of the citizens that Vanderdonk actually went back to the Netherlands to plead the case uh, to the state general uh, for these ri- for these extra rights. And so what happened is the town actually became a municipal city, and actually instead of a Dutch West Indies colony, it became a newly incorporated city. And when was this? That was in 1653, is that when that actually happened? Right, which is interesting because this would get sort of caught up in the clogs of bureaucracy until 1657, but this is when the citizens of New Amsterdam actually became citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and if Stuyvesant had had his way, I think that not everybody would have been allowed. I don't, no, I don't, that doesn't sound like his style. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. No, he was actually, I mean, for the diversity that was present at the time in New Amsterdam, Jews were arriving for mm-hmm. the first time. And if it had been up to Stuyvesant, they would have been would, run out of town. They would have been run out of town. And he actually tried and when, then was later actually reprimanded by the home company who said, you can't be a religious bigot. You have to let these people, we need these people to run our, to run our businesses, to keep it like a healthy colony. Right. So they were balancing both the religious freedoms with being a well-run company. Not to uh, put too much negativity on him, because what he did do is he sort of kept New Amsterdam together and safe for as long as it could be. One of the ways that he did this was sort of his crafty negotiations with uh, the other colonies. Now, keep in mind, there's like four other English colonies, you know. They were completely surrounding New Amsterdam or and, New yeah, Netherland. The New Netherland. Right. Now, you know, according to the Dutch claim, New Netherland actually went all the way up through Connecticut. But in practical purposes, there were so many English settlers through there. I mean, how could you really enforce it? He decided to sort of force the hand of the English a little bit. So he sent a boat up to New Haven, Connecticut and basically stole a shipping vessel out of the out of the harbor Ooh. saying well this isn't land of new netherland governor of connecticut was furious but what ended up happening is they all kind of sat down and 
sort of arranged the boundaries and decided to, mm. to make compromises. Stuyvesant had to compromise that this land that New Netherland claimed that had all these English settlers really wasn't his. But then they had to honor the sort of northern boundary of of New Amsterdam. So by actually putting limits on New Netherlands territories, they were also granting well, s- New yeah, Netherlands some because they were territory. they were saying you these are your boundaries. Granted, this didn't make the Dutch happy, but in a, in a modern perspective, it actually strengthened what he did have, and the English probably would have come and taken it a lot sooner. Right. So this is on the Treaty of Hartford from 1650. Yes, Treaty of Hartford. Right. This also divided Long Island. The English were granted the larger western section, and the Dutch got the section that was closer to New Amsterdam. Right. Well, in 1653, war was breaking out between Holland and England, and New England was charging that the Dutch were conspiring with the Indians to take over Connecticut colonies. So Stuyvesant was afraid that the English actually were going to march down mm-hmm. onto New Amsterdam. Yeah. And so he needed to erect some kind of fortification to keep out the Indians. And thus, and he built a big wall. A wall along a street. A wall street. <laughs> a walled street. So th- that wall that he built is yes. probably the biggest imprint of anything that he's done that's still with us and that you know he could not well, even possibly- though the wall's no longer there but i mean the name is there and you can you can see where it would be and you can yeah you trace almost the border, the northern border of the old city of new amsterdam right that was the wall that protected the territory of new amsterdam it stretched 2340 feet from the east river to the hudson and if you can imagine it, the earth was packed on the inside of the wall. So it was packed up, built up, so that the Dutch soldiers could actually run up and look over the wall. Oh. So that they, they had like a little ramp sure, on that side sure. so that they could fight them off. And there was a gate by what is now Trinity Church uh, that opened up and they could let the cows come in and mm-hmm. go out during the day. The British soldiers never came. There never really sure. was there, there an was invasion. N- there was never any attack from, from that direction, right? No. But there were Indian attacks, though, still in the future here. There were Indian attacks, and what's notable is that between 1645 and 1655, there really weren't any big Indian attacks. Mm -hmm. It was relatively peaceful, I mean, as compared to his predecessors. But then in 1655, there was a settler named Hendrik van Dyke, and he had a farm that was just a block south of basically where Trinity Church is now. And one night he saw somebody out in his orchard stealing a peach, and he went to the rather extreme position of shooting this person. And this was an Indian woman, and this touched off what would be called the Peach War. Now, I know you have a different theory well, the, well, about I'd, this. I'd also, the I mean, what Shorto says in his book, which I think sounds a little bit more plausible, is that uh, Stuyvesant had also recently ran off a small enclave of Swedish people. Called It was called New Sweden. It was also on the land of New Netherlands. The Indians had had a very strong, very close a trade agreement with the Swedish. And so by running them off, they, they ran off a, a very big trade partner of them. So as a sort of a scare tactic, they sort of kicked off what then became the Peach War. Right, the next day, so the day after, 2,000 Indians hit the streets of New Amsterdam, looking like they were ready for a fight. They were menacing, they were scary looking, and they really did things that amount to psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. They, they just entered people's houses. They stood downstairs in the kitchen, so when people came down, there was a scary-looking, uh, yeah. painted face 
yeah, Indians standing me. there, right? There were children screaming. There were wives fainting. There were husbands trying to be brave. I mean, you can imagine there was chaos in the street. Finally, that night, they did march on Van Dyke's house and they did kill him. And oh. then there was another shot, and then this started a three-day war during mm-hmm. which 100 settlers were killed, okay. and 150 more dragged off to prison, and Stuyvesant would have to actually settle this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Indians sued for peace. They settled, but he never got back all of the prisoners. And actually, I think that your friend Adrian may have been one of those Unfortunately, who Unfortunately, Adrian Vanderdonk was one of the people who died during this war because he sort of disappears from the, from the record. So, and he's, he's assumed to have died at this point. So Charles II became the king of England at this time and you know, decided that he wanted to reacquire, I guess, all these settlements, all the colonies under one, on, under the crown. Right. So, you know, he sent an, um, an armada over to reacquire everything. So, you know, he, he went down the, the seaboard and he went to Boston and to John Winthrop's and, and to the, that Puritan colony. The Dutch actually knew this was happening. They th- told, at least they told Stuyvesant, that they thought that the English were there to live free under us. They actually, you know, thought they were merely gathering up the rogue English colonies and that they would leave them alone. So Stuyvesant wasn't even in New Amsterdam. You know, eventually he returned and the English boats enter the New York Harbor. And this is in 1664. Right. The same year, it should be noted, that Charles II gave as a birthday present the territory to his brother, the Duke of York. Yes. Which is a very nice birthday what present. What a nice I'm, present. I must add. A letter of surrender was sent to Peter Stuyvesant. He returned the letter back to the ship because it was not properly addressed to him. You see, this is like something about Peter you're going to notice here. He likes to stall. So he returned the letter. It wasn't properly addressed. It was sent back a second time with his name on it. He read it in front of his councilmen and in dramatic and bold fashion as if to sort of like rally the troops. He took the letter and just ripped it up and threw it in the air. What, how did the colonists react? Well, they would have applauded madly. They were horrified. Oh. Because, you see, they didn't really care who was running the colony because the Dutch hadn't done that great of a job. And they didn't care who they were paying their taxes to. And they weren't re- really receiving the representation of government that they wanted. So why fight for the death for their company and for this country? So it was just impossible for... The Dutch to rally their troops. As exactly. It were. Nobody the, was willing to fight. Right. The colonists dema- they demanded to see the ripped up letter. They put it back together, and then they made their decision that they were not fighting. Stuyvesant's own son basically kind of turned his back on him. Well, they knew they would have lost, and and furthermore, they had spent so much time rebuilding the city already. Exactly. And they were a merchant town, and they had their own interests to protect. They I mean, have been what destroyed. was a, right? Yeah. What was a war going to prove? But. Don't tell that to Peter Stuyvesant. He marched up Fort Amsterdam. He had one alone gunner there aimed out at the ships, and he was ready. He was ready to die. He was going to. He was going to die for the for the Dutch West Indies. He was going to die for his colony. But you know, you can't. One man can't fight a war. He was actually talked back down by a minister and his son. 
The colonists pleaded with him again. He went back to the British and he said, well, could you just wait for the home office to respond? And then, like again, he's stalling here again. Um, but a petition from the citizens just asked them to, to surrender. Um, in Shorter's book, which I think is really fascinating, he actually wonders if at this point Peter Stuyvesant just doesn't look around and think, well, you know what? My suspicions were right. This mixture of races and religions is weak. You know, if, had this been one religion and one race of people, we would have like fought, fought for this. We would have fought for this colony. Um, mm. You know, I would rather be carried out dead is one of the things <clears throat> that he said. But despite this... They did surrender, and they actually went to Stuyvesant's farm to sign the surrender. One of his legacies, kind of ironically enough, is some of the terms of the surrender, because within it, the citizens of New York now got things like freedom of worship. They got unrestricted trade. They got some property rights, compensation for quartering soldiers. And these were things that Stuyvesant had actually bargained for? Well... Here's no one really knows. The Anglophile version is that these were actually granted by the king. But to me, it makes a little bit more sense to think that the citizens actually convinced Stuyvesant to fight for these things. And he might have actually come to the table with, with these t- things too, thinking that, well, you know, we need to give as much power to these people now that we are transferring to a, you know, a country that I don't work for. And so anyway, so he was sent back to the Netherlands, but I think it should be of note that he ended up going back to New York and wanted to be a citizen of New York, even though he was no longer leader there. And he did come back and he moved into his country estate in the Bowery in the East Village. And he lived there through the end of his life. And so he ended up dying in 1672. Now, there's still evidence of Peter Stuyvesant all through the East Village or in, in Manhattan in general. His name is just about everywhere. A Stuyvesant Street is around third, between Second and Third Avenues and Tenth Street. Right, just north of St. Mark's. It's that street that's it's a little bit out of whack, right? It kind of it, it's by St. Mark in the Bowery Correct. Church. It's one of it's actually the only street that still remains in the exact same place that it did when st- it was Stuyvesant's farm, right? Because it's it's a curious diagonal street in a in a. A grid, so it's little. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really pretty. Actually, it makes a nice angular townhouse. And right, yes, it's beautiful visit. there. Yeah. And it, it is right there that, in fact, Peter Stuyvesant hangs out, for he's buried at the St. Mark's Church. Uh-huh. And there's a little tomb there that you can still visit, and it's it says Petrus Stuyvesant. And I should mention one more little site that you can go to now in the East Village. At 13th Street, there is a plaque that says this is where Peter Stuyvesant's pear tree used to stand. For his pear tree for 200 years. I mean, so he, you know, he had a bunch of fruit trees that grew on his on his farm. There was one tree that had lived all the way to the mid 19th century and had actually been a little bit of a a tourist attraction mm. for people because if you can imagine they were as far from Peter Stuyvesant as we are from them it's right. like it was it was that much of a period of time so this was a relic of like before there was a New York but unfortunately in the 1860s it was run over by a carriage oh so the trees no longer there but there is a <clears> plaque there uh, that honors it and it's right is there next any to- sign of the tree 
No, it's it's at a, it's a it's a Kiehl's beauty shop. So when um, you get, when you go there for your like your ointments well, and your or shampoos, maybe a pear peel. There might be a I get a pear peel. Yes, I think they might have one in special honor of Stuyvesant and his pears. So. And we should we should also notice obviously that Stuyvesant Town is a, a mammoth housing complex that is north of 14th Street in the East Village, named after him. And Stuyvesant Park is on 16th and 2nd Avenue, and is a very beautiful park over even though it is cut through by second avenue but it's a beautiful area and lots of brownstones around it and i dare say that stuyvesant's legacy also lives on in every charismatic energetic heavy-handed leader that this bullheaded leader yes (laughs) uh but before we leave you we thought we'd just mention two of the books that we were both referring to well greg was referring a fantastic book. You guys should read The Island at the Center of the World. It's actually, it's by Russell Shorto. Shorto's got a lot of very strong opinions. It's a very fascinating read. And the book that I've been reading that I would highly recommend is The Epic of New York City, a narrative history by Edward Robb Ellis. It came out in 1966. It's it's a fun, a fun read. He's a great essayist and a lot of fun anecdotes. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, yes, thank you for sitting through the life of Peter Stuyvesant. We will uh, have another exciting New York locale for you next week. So It's a surprise. We uh, It won't be in the 17th century, however. No, no it won't, it won't have even touched the 17th century. Uh, thank you for tuning in and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. 